1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. So for today's episode, as I talked about in the last episode, I have my friend, Torin, on, and we're going to have a conversation continuing along the lines of like what's going on in our culture today. Last week, I sort of used the He Gets Us commercial as a bit of a framing device to talk about the overall question about how Christians are supposed to answer with these difficult questions in today's society in dealing with the left, but it's even more broad than that, but dealing with the question of evangelism and responding to people living in sinful lifestyles in today's growing and increasingly secular culture where you have all these things like mashed together. You have the, of course, ever-growing move away from God in our institutions and to become more atheistic. You have the increasing push to normalize things that the traditional church has Viewed as sinful, such as homosexuality or transgenderism, or even just, you know, like, you know, the sexual hedonism that's sort of been predominant in our culture, going back to you could say the 60s or so. And this sort of, I guess what I would describe, this pathological individualism that's like, you know, I guess I I would best describe it as sort of like self-deistic and a worship of the self rather than God. And so there's a lot of different things that are. Competing against the Christian worldview. And there are various responses to that in the world of Christianity. And my friend Torin has a particular experience and background in his life and testimony that I think lends itself to having a conversation along the lines of, you know, where we both, I think, have similar views that. A lot of Christians on one side are getting it wrong, and a lot of Christians on the other side are equally getting it wrong. So we're going to have a conversation about this stuff, continue the conversation, and hopefully it'll be edifying and encouraging and educational for everyone, including myself, because I like to learn from people as I talk to them. So with that sort of introduction out of the way, I will now introduce Torin. So Torin, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am... Doing fantastic, actually. It's been a uh, long, hard couple weeks here, but I've been busy and hard at it with my work here at LCI and within the Libertarian Party and in my own personal job. And so, I don't know. It's like I'm weary, but at the same time, it's like a kind of good kind of weary and tired. You know what I mean? Because I, I, nothing's perfect, but I do feel like I'm where God wants me to be and doing a lot of just productive work. And I don't know if that feels good. So I'm doing pretty well. So Torin, you and I have had a few conversations now, although most of them happened either on different podcasts or on my old podcast, the Daniel 3 podcast. And I'll have links to those into the, in the description if people want to go check those out, because they definitely should. I think we had very good conversations in all of those episodes. But this is a new show. And, you know, probably some new people who are watching now who haven't watched before. So I want to give you a chance here at the outset to introduce yourself and go into, you know, however in in detail you want, sort of your journey, because it's definitely a unique one. You're someone who has sort of personally, you know, struggled and gone through, I don't want to give too much away, I'll let you explain it yourself, but gone through a lot of the things that relate to today's topic.
2: Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you having me on. I'm definitely willing to share a pretty open book with my story. I mean, I think I have, I mean, you say it's unique, but I I mean, I, I don't know, maybe each of our circumstances are unique, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of us end up going through some of the same struggles. Mine is one of dealing, you know, I've, why am I on a biblical anarchy podcast? Well, I am a Christian and I've dealt with issues with authority sometimes and sometimes poorly. I've dealt with issues of authority. Sometimes I've dealt with them well. A lot of my life, I haven't liked authority, government, or I've had some run-ins with the church as well. And again, some of those things I've dealt with well, others I haven't. There are some areas in life right now, in the not too recent past that, I'm looking back on and being like, gosh, I wish I would have just kept my mouth shut rather than say some of the things that I have said. But yeah, so basically, I grew up in the church, grew up in a very conservative Christian, some would say fundamentalist Christian household. was very conservative, was a big time sort of right wing kid growing up, enjoyed the political space, regretfully. Voted for the McCain's, who I'm sure we'll end up talking about later. (laughs) Regretfully voted for them back in 2008. I didn't know any better at the time. I was just a good Christian at that point. Um, And then spent some time overseas. I did some mission work, some college ministry overseas, and that completely changed my worldview. And especially as it relates to politics, I think at that time... Just getting out of the U.S., getting away from, you know, Western right-wing Christianity just sort of opened up my mind, not to, I would say, not to anything more secular or left. It kind of opened up my mind to other. Like, there's got to be something else here besides this bickering that's going on in politics. So at that time, I became pretty politically agnostic, but unfortunately (laughs) dealt with some run-ins with the church I have no issues calling it for what it is now, but just dealt with abuse in the church. And it was not good. It was like a poison dealing with abuse and the abuse of power, the abuse of authority, the abuse of spiritual authority is like a poison. And I slowly, I would say that poison slowly killed me as an individual over the course of about four or five years to the point where, I mean, I had pretty much all but lost my faith. I don't think it was complete loss of faith. I think there was still something there that came to a point where I had struggled with gender issues most of my life. I thought they had been resolved when I was overseas because I was actually kind of living out being my truest self as the left would want me to be while I was overseas. But the abuse kind of killed that in some ways. And so after a long sort of spiral and just kind of hit rock bottom and didn't find my faith coming back to save me, decided to go through with a transition and attempt to live a cross-sex lifestyle for a few years. I would say, thankfully, (laughs) by the grace of God, I'm a very introspective individual and tend to think a lot and just had some things happen and realized that really what i was doing with that was i was trying to treat a broken leg with painkillers i was just kind of giving myself painkillers that would deal with this broken leg and thinking that the broken leg was gender dysphoria but really the gender dysphoria was just the pain that's all it was and so the pain the painkillers helped with the pain but the leg was still broken and broken pretty badly and so when i once i realized that and realized What was really going on underneath was, you know, I had been through some things. I had been through, you know, an abusive culture with the church, you know, have dealt with my own sin, my own struggles, my own perfectionism. And really what I realized was that broken leg, I won't just say it was a lack of faith. I think that's too simplistic. It was more so like a, it was just a self-rejection, a self-hatred. And once I dealt with that, I realized I didn't need the painkillers anymore. And so now here I am back today, maybe for the first time in like a decade, actually kind of feeling like myself in trying to seek and live out what God has for me in life. And I think that's probably what brings us here into this conversation because these two paths have kind of intersected recently quite a bit. Right. How much of your journey
1: transitioning and then de-transitioning, for, for, I don't know if that's the best term or not, but how much of that? was also like a coming back to christ sort of experience and how much of that was we're taught that when we come to christ that salvation isn't just like oh you get a get into heaven free card or something like that but no we're told that we will will be born again that we die on the cross with jesus and then we are risen again in him which is what baptism is supposed to represent and So, I'm just curious to hear you go into a little bit of detail about that as well, in terms of if that's sort of how you would describe it, or if there was, I mean, it's probably sometimes we explain things in concepts, but they don't quite map onto reality Mm -hmm. because sometimes the way we experience things isn't exactly cookie cutter like that. But how would you answer that?
2: Yeah, it's a tough question because I don't know. I don't know how much it was me, say, quote unquote, coming back to Christ versus. I feel like God was just saying, you know, enough is enough. (laughs) I've been pondering this a lot for a lot of months now Been, you know, going to, you know, counseling, whatnot, and just digging through this. And I think my current best way to put it is, you know, as I said, I was a, I was a missionary. I was doing mission work. I felt more alive than I had ever felt and went through an abusive situation. I won't, There's no need to get into that too much right now, but it just, like I said, it was like a poison. It was like a poison. So it's like I kind of held on to who I was and held on to my faith for a while, but it was like, you know, any sort of decent poison that just takes a while to set in, it it kind of comes gradually. And then suddenly I gradually just sort of lost, I felt like I couldn't connect to God at all and just couldn't connect to him. And eventually, it was just so dead, and some other things had gone in, gone on in life, lost a marriage. It just felt like God wasn't there anymore, or just wasn't personal, wasn't, like there was just no relationship. And I don't know if it's necessarily something that I had chosen. I don't know, it's a mixture, because you, when you deal with things like this, when you look at abuse, or you look at other things, and you try to evaluate the aftermath, there is this sense of wanting to draw a nice, clean line between, say, sin and suffering, and a lot of times you just can't. I look back, I listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast from Christianity Today, and I listened to that story about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill, and I'm like, gosh, that was actually my story. I never went to Mars Hill, didn't meet anybody who went, but it was actually my circles. That church was in my circles. People that were in my organization, I mean, Mark Driscoll was... Stop short of calling him the second coming of Christ, but he was put up on a pretty high pedestal. And so when you, so when I saw that and started hearing about some of the, let's just say, repercussions, some of the consequences and issues and effects that it had on people in their spiritual lives, I suddenly realized, oh, wait, what happened to me and how I responded, this doesn't, this isn't so shocking anymore. Like it, it makes sense. Like I responded to the trauma of abuse the way the human typically does. The, but the flip side of that as well is I'm not absolving myself of responsibility because I also say it, it actually disappoints me and I'm kind of ashamed to say that I was the type of person that responded the way that I did too, which was looking back, I can point to a few decisions that I made in life, a few decisions to move to certain houses, move to certain cities, take certain jobs, Where I'm looking back now and I'm like, I did that only because I was running from pain. I did that only because I was running from the pain of what happened to me in Southeast Asia. I did that only because of the pain of things that happened in the past. And it was those decisions that I look back on and say, man, I regret making these moves because I made those moves out of desperation to run from pain they didn't help. And so it just kept being the spiral. And so I got to the point where I was like, okay, well, I've got this gender stuff and nothing else has worked. Might be this, might as well try that. And so, yeah, it got to this, it just got to this point where I don't know if it was just coming back to Jesus or just like, I feel like, you know, there's the verses in the New Testament, like we, we know that he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. I think there is an element of that where I haven't seen this yet. I haven't been able to flesh this out yet. I haven't been able to put something specific here, but I think in some ways I have a feeling that, you know, Lord willing, I'm still around in five, 10, 20, 30 years. I'll be able to look back on this last decade of my, decade of my life and be thankful because God allowed me to go through what I needed to go through to at, in, at the end be closer to him. And I think he just said at one point, just enough is enough. It's time for Torn, it's time for you to wake up and start digging into this stuff. And really what happened was all of the questions that I had after the abuse, all the questions I couldn't answer that I just gave up on trying to answer, which led eventually to me transitioning. Suddenly, I just saw some of those things starting to open up. And yeah, once I, I saw some of those questions starting to be answered and, or at least be thought through and having, like having a pastor and having, you know, I'm, I've been reading N.T. Wright, Dallas Willard, and some of these guys are wrestling with some of those questions that I had back, you know, 10 years ago. And now that I'm seeing people wrestle with them faithfully, like, okay, that's my experience too. And I'm happy to be doing this wrestling again, rather than just sort of numb like I've been for most of the last ten years.
1: Yeah. So, how much of the time that you spent identifying as a woman or a trans woman, and you, when you were interacting with people in your community, and I guess you know that would include people in the libertarian sphere, people, in, and then people in the Christian sphere, maybe people in your community. What were those? experiences like? And then especially as you started to go through this journey of realizing that you were, in your own words, that you were treating this pain you were going through with painkillers, but not actually treating the underlying problem. What role did the people around you play at the different parts of this journey in terms of either A, I'm sure there's probably some people who were affirming you down that path. And I'm sure there was probably presumably people who had a significant problem with what you're doing and maybe ostracized you. And then I'm, I'm hopeful more than just myself. I can speak for myself that I tried to do neither of those things. I tried to continue to talk to you and treat you as a person who I, you know, consider to be a friend and an ally in the circles that we were, that we were both involved in. But also I tried to not, I tried not to compromise on what my conceptions of truth were, but I tried to understand where you were coming from and to, not make you feel ostracized or judged. So I'm just curious what those experiences with different people and different groups were like and in, in what ways those impacted you, whether positive or negative.
2: Yeah. I would say, I mean, I got the reactions ran right the gamut. And really it was the polar opposites were the worst. You know, the affirmation at first felt really good, but then it just, I was never not aware of the, for lack of a better word, the slippery slope of the gender ideology. I was aware that I was making the decision as a 30-year-old that had been wrestling with it for you know two decades, that I was not a kid. I was trying to do my best. I didn't want to, say, encourage anyone else to go through what I was going through. I didn't view it as something that was to be celebrated or should be so, yeah, the affirmation early on, it's like it felt good. It was kind of a drug. It was like, okay, you know, way to go. Way to just be your true self. We're excited for you. It was like, okay, great. But then, you know, the rejection as well was on the other side wasn't, didn't feel good. Um, right. fact that it just, there were some people that didn't want to talk to me. And I was like, oh, well, I know your trepidation about this. and I actually agree with it. It's just, I don't feel like I have any other options here. Right. That's literally what you, <laughs> like the first yeah. time you and I had a conversation
1: about your transition and I tried to respectfully just, I was like, listen, I, you know, I love you as a, you know, as I love all pe- people in my life and people that I meet and I wish the best for you and I'm just not sure that this is the best thing for you and it doesn't comport with what I think <laughs> scripture teaches and you basically said, well, I don't. No, if I disagree with you I just feel like I've done everything else and I'm going through this journey and I remember just kind of saying well what am I going to say to that like <laughs> you know all I, could, all I could do is be like well I, I just you know I will pray for you and I hope that I don't forget the way I said it but I think what I tried to say was just that I hope that no matter where you end up that you know God loves you and that you will continue to try to press towards him and to try to understand what he wants for you in your life you know, something along those, effects. which is tough to say because you don't want to, yeah, you know, I think a lot of people, like, I, I, I'm speculating here. I think some people are probably avoided talking to you during that time. Probably some of them out of judgment and just like a bit of a prejudice and probably a lot of them just because they didn't know what to say because it, it is, it can be difficult to know what to say that do, that won't come off as either insulting or cliche or et cetera, which I know I struggled with that, but And did you feel like maybe there were like people on both sides who like the people who were affirming you, did you ever get the sense that like they were almost trying to use you or to maybe not use you like they were targeting you, but just you were part of a agenda, you know, so so to speak. I don't know if you ever got that sense from them.
2: I mean, I think I had a, I I mean, I have, I have an aversion to the quote unquote progressive agenda in general. So (laughs) it's like, you were a staunch libertarian during pretty yes, much all this time.
1: So, I mean. Yeah, so.
2: <laughs> I don't know how much I, I actually swam in those circles. But I think either way, I think judgment either way, in some ways, felt dehumanizing. And that might be the best way to put It's like this celebration. Anyone who was just out and out, happy about it, celebrating it, I, I felt very uncomfortable with. Anyone who was just out and out rejecting it, I felt uncomfortable with. Why? Because I was in neither. Like I was in neither camp. I was in this place of, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't think. I mean, based on my worldview, based on what I believe, I'm like you know 99% certain that this isn't desirable, to say the least. But. At the same time, the, you know, my faith leaders, counseling, even scripture hasn't shown me, hasn't shown me an actual way out of this, like an actual practical way out of this. Whereas society is showing a practical way out of this that seems to be working. And so the things that helped me the most and the people that I clung to the most were the ones that were willing to sit in that in-between space with me. I was like, well, we don't know if you're making the right decision, or even in some cases, we don't think you're right making the right decision. But we understand the dilemma that you're facing, that you're facing something very real. Gender dysphoria is very real. And we don't know how to deal with it. Whereas, you know, most of the, you know, whether it's, you know, conservative Christianity and some of the places that, that I grew up where it's like, oh, well, you just need to believe in Jesus more. Well, yeah, Actually, the <laughs> in some ways, it's like that, I mean, it's a reductionist answer. It's like, yeah, in some ways, that's true. I mean, there was a time in my life where I really had a thriving faith and all the gender stuff was, I'm learning now all the reasons why I didn't struggle with gender during that time. Learning why all that's tied together and why when that came crashing down because of you know abuse, why it all came back up, so, so it's like, yeah, okay, so Jesus is the answer, but what does that mean practically? What does that mean when I'm actually struggling with this, and what about society that's and I don't want to just blame it on society i mean it it just seems like there was this there's just this cultural moment where you know they're suddenly. Trans issues aren't taboo to talk about in society anymore. People aren't really getting fired for transitioning anymore. Suddenly, it's kind of being celebrated. And that was the only practical answer given to me other than, oh, just believe Jesus more or, you know, go to some, you know, Jesus camp or something to be, get your demons exercised. Like, (laughs) like, I don't know. So, so it was those people who were willing to say, I don't know, that were the ones that you know, really I clung to the most, and they're the ones that stuck by me and allowed, it, and they just really, they walked with me through the struggle, and that was the big thing.
1: Yeah, which is, I mean, Jesus was accused of eating with sinners and tax collectors and at no point in that process, do we read or can we even assume that Jesus was sitting there with them and going and everything you're doing is great. Keep doing, you know what I mean? Like, right. But at the same time, he had much more scorn for the religious leaders of that time than he did for common folk or the sinners or anything like that. And there's something, yeah, I think there's something there to to contemplate and it gets into some of the things you and I've been talking about privately off the air back and forth on Twitter and private chats and stuff. Cause we mm-hmm. both go at it in multiple angles. We both as Christians and libertarians tend to <laughs> engage in the different discourses going on. And like I guess there's, there's so many different moving parts to this, but so there was that documentary that the daily wire released, I forget sometime in the past year called what is a woman,
2: which yep. have you watched that? No. Okay. Um, yeah. I, so
1: I've watched it, and let me just say that the Matt Walsh that you see in that documentary is nothing like the Matt Walsh you see on Twitter on his video clips lately. Because it was very much just a educational documentary. He goes around, he interviews a bunch of people, asks a bunch of questions. At no point is he insulting to people, or derogatory, or, you know, sometimes he's a little bit combative in the questions, like he's just pressing to try to get an answer. But no more aggressive than that. And then... Lately, there was that whole controversy where he, in a clip on his podcast, I think he started out by going after with Mulvaney, I think is the name of yep. the trans activist, and saying that you're, I don't remember the exact words, but just like that you're unnatural, you're synthetic, you're creepy, you'll never be that to which you are trying to be, and wasn't nice, to say the <laughs> yeah. least. And so you got reactions I wouldn't say it was just this, but this seemed to be, along with a lot of other things going on, a sort of like fever pitch, so to speak, where now the conversation's really heated up on both sides. You have just the ever-increasing rhetoric of the trans rights activists on one side, but then you have the ever-increasing anti-trans activism from people like Matt Walsh and conservatives, whether it's the Daily Wire or, or other groups. And I'm sitting here only now kind of diving into it over the last couple of weeks because I'm trying to figure out the right way to go through this because I see the danger and the problems that like the conservatives see. And yep. it is in my nature and in my core, in my heart that like, I mean, number one, like first and foremost that I think children need protected in some way from this. Cause I think children are impressionable I think people like Abigail Schreier have done great work at exposing how there's a very harmful social contaminant aspect to what's going on here. And although the left will try to deny it, there's definitely a concerted effort to push this on younger and younger people and for hormone treatments to start earlier and earlier and even things like top surgery and things happening to people. Like There was literally a, a surgeon on the I Am The What Is A Woman documentary he was saying like that she has done it on women as young as, I think, 15 or 16, and yep. there's no problem with that. And she's not the only one. There's other clinics that have been caught in this too. So it's like you see all that, and you're like, listen, as a libertarian, if an adult wants to go and pursue things in the same way you did, although I might have a moral and biblical opposition to that and would not advise someone to do that and would hope that they, if they are doing that, you know, that they, something would happen, that God would intervene or draw them near to him and that they would come out of that. I'm not keen to really spend too much time going after that person in any sort of public discourse, other than if like, you know, if it's a very specific topic of like, you know, can a man become a woman or vice versa? And I'd just be like, well, no, I don't think that's scientific or biblical, but people should have the right to, do with their bodies as they will you know in a libertarian sense, I think that's at the very least we don't want the government stepping in right it's like in a Christian metaphysical sense, I don't know if you have the right to do that to your body, but is the use of the state and state violence to stop that biblical or helpful I don't think so. but when it comes to how we handle this now with children, especially with children in public school and whatnot, it becomes complicated so I get where the conservatives are coming from, but I think that what they are doing in the public discourse as of late is going down a turn that is, I don't know if it's going to actually result in changed hearts or minds. And that includes people who are pro-gender transition and pro-kind of like the LGBT agenda and people who are themselves gay or transgender. I don't think that rhetoric is really going to reach them. The only thing it seems to be If it's having any effect at all, it's only to create laws in certain states that, you know, there are certain laws being passed. And I have mixed opinions about that as well. So we could talk about the issues on the left, but I think those are kind of obvious. I want to talk about the issues on the right that I just kind of highlighted and that I know you've seen too. And to me, there's a connection there with like, you know, not only what we're seeing, but then like what you went through. And it's like, I know, I feel like, and this is sort of a question, sort of a, also a respond to my observation kind of question. It seems to me that if you were surrounded with mostly people like that on your journey, I'm not saying that that would have necessarily prevented you from getting to where you are now, but it certainly would have made it a lot harder. Certainly wouldn't have enabled you or given you, you know what I mean? like, You wouldn't be able to go back and credit. Well, the people who sat there dehumanizing me and calling me a bunch of names and just shouting loudly at me like you are not a woman and you will never be a woman. And just being very vitriolic about that, you know, it's like, I can't think of any time that that's like, people go out and do that. And then someone goes, Oh, wow. You know, Matt Walsh went out there and said all that. And I realized he's right. And I've detransitioned. Like, I mean, if that, I challenge someone to show me (laughs) that person, if they exist. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on all this? Yes.
2: (laughs) All right. And podcast. (laughs) no. (laughs) <laughs> no, um No, I mean you're hit, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head a little bit. This past week is I mean it was actually really difficult for me personally just kind of watching it unfold. There's a writer for the Daily Wire, a girl named Christina Buttons.
1: Yes, yes, I just saw this, yeah.
2: Yeah, she has uh, she's done a lot of really good work exposing the garbage on the left about gender ideology. And she's not even a conservative She grew up very progressive. She'll even say she's a pro-choice atheist, politically agnostic. She's not the kind of person you would expect to get hired by the Daily Wire. But because she had this very particular field of interest and she was very much against what's going on with kids, they hired her. She's done a lot of great work. There's been a lot of breaking news and a lot of things that have come up in the conservative space regarding some of this stuff. She's the one that did a lot of the initial research on, but most conservatives wouldn't know her name just because she's not a big personality, it's not like she's out there doing podcasts, she's not doing she's not doing the punditry that you know Walshes or Knowles is doing. She's just reporting. She's a journalist. So you know she wrote an article on a Substack article this week resigning from the Daily Wire because of the inflammatory rhetoric from Walsh who again I'll never watch the video because I or I'll never watch his documentary I just don't want to he had rubbed me the wrong way well before that came out and so I was expecting the documentary to just be him being a jerk I was pleasantly surprised when I heard he wasn't and that it was actually really well done but i also had this reaction of because it's mad walsh it's actually just going to rile up his base maybe it'll expose a few more conservatives or others who aren't who don't really need convincing but just need to be shown the facts well the main maybe problem
1: is that it's also behind a paywall yeah, i mean there's clips circulating but it's like you don't get I would understand if it was like, hey, the first month behind the paywall. But after that, it's like, well, are you trying to impact change or not? Because, you know, I I don't know. At least that's my thoughts, but I don't mean to interrupt you.
2: (laughs) Yeah. But then there was Michael Knowles at CPAC and saying he needs to, we need to eradicate transgenderism. And he went on, I guess, to sort of explain what he meant by that. But it's like, at that point, it's like, come on, you're giving rabid dogs, you know, meat at that point when you say, it's like, transgenderism.
1: I don't think he was actually calling for the genocide of transgender people. But at the same time, like, that's very poor wording. And, like, you have to know that if you say something like that, that the people on the left, they're going to run with it and go with it. And they don't care. They're not going to care to say, that's not what I meant. Like, I mean, come on, it's the left. like. Are you really expecting the left to be reasonable when you use strong language like that? Like, they're going to be all over it.
2: (laughs) It read as intentionally inflammatory. And, you know, even Christina pointed that out in her resignation. It's like, well, you didn't need to say this. You know, what your main point was is clear enough and good enough. And I agree with your main point. But you don't need to add in all of these other things. You don't need to be a jerk. And because this issue is so... Big and so consequential, like we need to handle it with care, and one of I think christina 's best points was that like matt i'm she's thrilled about well, i would, i don't know if she's thrilled I, I don't know how to judge, but I think there's a lot of celebration of some of the red state laws banning transition of youth and stuff, and again as a as someone who doesn't really believe in the state, I have mixed feelings about that on one hand. Great. On the other hand, I don't know. But her point was, what about all the kids in the blue states? What about all those kids? Because all, you know, these things that the Daily Wire is doing, it's just like, you know, Matt was down in Mississippi last week celebrating their passing. It's like, well, great. It's Mississippi. This all, I mean, you didn't have to do much to get this passed in Mississippi. But what about the kids here where I live in Philadelphia who are getting indoctrinated in the schools here? They're, you know, chop got money from Rachel Levine, and now Chop is sending money to the Philly schools. and it's what about those kids? You're not going to you're not going to affect or change things for those kids by this just inflammation of the culture war. Like you really do have to t- attack it, and this is what Christina was saying you have to attack it with nuanced, precise language. That includes compassion. But instead of that, like what really hurt, and I I think what was just really bothering me, and I literally shed tears over it this week because it was that just shocking. And maybe it's not shocking is not the right word because I honestly wouldn't expect anything else from the right, but just seeing it how they attacked Christina and be like oh so you're now your pro doctor's butchering kids and oh you can't show compassion to these people and we got it's like matt's winning matt's done more for the movement than you ever have and look at all this stuff happening in red states and like this stuff is satanic god would want us to fight this at all costs and it was just jarring seeing people Who have, like, you know, God first in their Twitter bios, just ripping Christina a new one because she dared to push back on the tactics and the methods of the Daily Wire and of the right in general. And I don't know. At this point, I'm still kind of like dealing with, okay, so what do I feel? What do I do about this? I mean, it's made me ponder a lot of things just because, like you said, at the end of the day, I think the right is correct about the issue and the dangers and the pitfalls and the things but what you know what is like the biblical Christian thing to do when you're right is it to go and conquer is it to go and you know completely degrade someone like Dylan Mulvaney are we called to eradicate transgenderism are we called to eradicate anything in this world? I don't know. I do know that, you know, the Jews were expecting a political Messiah that would come and eradicate the Roman empire and restore the temple to its rightly pl- rightful place. Like Jesus didn't do that. <laughs> and especially when it came to like, you know, s- instances of individual sin and suffering. I mean, there was no place where he- he was any like you see his heart and his gentleness and his compassion come out you know when the pharisees bring the woman to him and and, and the woman caught in adultery and he draws a line in the hand, sand and says you know you who you who has no sin cast the first stone and everybody walks away he's the only one without sin and he doesn't cast the stone You know, yes, there is the go and sin no more aspect of it. And no, he's not condemning it, but he is, there is something radical to his love and his compassion.
1: Right. Well, he desires mercy, not sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah. That's the whole point of the gospel is that, I mean, there's two aspects to it, right? Like there's, and I had a conversation with one of our Christians for Liberty Network co-hosts a couple episodes ago where we were talking about the conquest of Canaan and the Old Testament wars. And we said, listen, God has the prerogative to judge sinners, but he also has the prerogative to show mercy. In the Old Testament, there was this special covenant with Israel that was post-Abraham up until the time of Jesus, where Israel was called to perform a specific purpose, but it was limited, and that's done away with. But to get to where that applies to this conversation, it's like. If God is the only one who has the actual prerogative to take vengeance upon sinners, to exact the wages of sin, which I think is what is clearly laid out in like Romans 12, which is, you know, the Lord says that vengeance is mine and we're to love our neighbors and our enemies and to live at peace with everyone. And I think what that means and what, what is really demonstrated in the story of the adulterer that you just recited yeah, Jesus is like, listen, I mean, yes, I have the right to judge your sin. In fact, sin is sort of its own judgment and sin, the wages of sin is death. And that doesn't even require God to actively do much. It's just that sin separates us from God. And the natural consequences of sin, I think, are that of which they, the more further away we get from God, the worse things are going to be for us. But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't want to do that. You know what I mean? It's like he doesn't want to just wipe out all of humanity. He doesn't just want to, like, oh, you're all a bunch of sinners, and you all deserve to go. Because here's the thing, it's like there's nothing about transgender people. There's nothing about gay people. There's nothing about those specific sinful lifestyles that is so much more especially sinful than the people going to church who are watching porn. Like, hey, probably odds are that someone in the Daily Wire, some, one of the prominent figures, probably, you know, even if they don't do it every day, they've probably watched porn at some point while they were married. And they, that's, that, I mean, Jesus says, if you even think about another woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. So it's like, so, they're not on a different plane in terms of their sin. And so are we going to say that, well, God loves straight people and forgives their sin, but the transgenders and the homosexuals, he wants to kill them? No, he wants, he wants all to come to repentance. That's what it says in First Timothy. And he desires mercy and not sacrifice. And I think that's what's missing from the conservative message is we shouldn't be demonizing these people. We should be saying, no, this is wrong, but there's a better way. That like, what, I think the right way to put this, and I want to get your reaction to this, is that you're... Just like you were, Torin, You're in pain. You're in this world. You, there's something in you that's broken, and you're trying to find a way to deal with the brokenness and deal with the pain. But whether it's living in a homosexual relationship or whether it's transitioning, at what the world calls transitioning to live as the other gender that was different than what you were given at birth or what your biological sex is, this whole thing, this whole LGBT movement is a false gospel. It is a false savior and it won't give you, it can superficially in the moment for a while, make you feel good, but it's not going to fill that hole in your heart. And instead repent and come to Jesus who is a perfect savior, who loves you, who doesn't need you to get it all. You don't need to come to him all fixed up and perfect. No, he loves you the way you are. He does call you to repent, But the good news is, is that he will walk with you through that. You don't have to change yourself to come to Christ. Christ will forgive your sins and he will work through you through the Holy Spirit to make you a new creation. Like that's, that is what we should be telling people. But instead it's just, no, what we need to do is demonize these people and we need to pass a bunch of, and again, I'm with you. I have mixed feelings as a libertarian and a Christian about laws that are for limiting these treatments on children because I kind of feel like maybe short term that's going to lead to some good, but I don't know. I just feel like everything the state touches, we don't always understand the unintentional unforeseen consequences of that maybe five years, 10 years down the road. I mean, one possible thing that has to be considered is that there are people, children who for them puberty starts way too early and they actually for them they need hormone blockers. Because if you're going through puberty at like five years old, that's actually not good for you. So, you know, are these laws crafted in such a way that it's going to be more difficult for people in certain positions to get the treatment they need? And I'm not trying to say, I'm again, I have mixed feelings about it. But the point is, I'm not putting my faith and my hope in we're going to pass a bunch of laws and going to defeat the gender cult. You know what I mean? Like, that is such a low hanging fruit and such a cop-out to what I think the real work that needs to be done is. That's my thought. I want to hear you address that. Well,
2: I mean, I think, I mean, here's, so here's the question. What is the real work that needs to be done? Are we called to tell people, tell people to go or tell people to repent? Are we called to that or are we called to show them? And I don't, I lean towards the latter I lean towards show it, but I don't think that necessarily doesn't mean a verbal aspect of things. But in order to call somebody to repentance, in some ways you have to make it attractive to them too. Because if you're just going to call and say, oh, repent, 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 but not offer them, what are the attractions of repentance? You have to give them the reasons. Show it. Right, right. Not even give them the reasons, but show them. Show, yeah, I mean, I think It's part of the reason why Jesus said, go and make disciples, because you were showing people what it looked like to live. What does it look like to, what does it actually look like to forgive somebody? What are the feelings associated with that? What are the, lo- what does it look like to live in community? What does it look like to confess sin in community? What does it look like to actually change? I don't see many Christians wanting to actually do that work. They don't want to show what it looks like to be the church, to be sort of this hospital for sinners. You know, Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous. He came to, or the healthy, he came to call the sick. Where's the sick? Where's the church that is the hospital, the center for sinners getting well? What most Christians kind of tend to want to do is be like, well, let's root out sin. When a lot of times, you know, If you're actually in community, if you're actually actually living these things out, actually showing the attractive nature of repenting and coming to Jesus, you are rooting out sin. But you're rooting it out in your own life first. And then people see the change and see the love. And at the end of the day, you know, again, taking another verse out of context, but like, they'll know we're Christians by our love. They'll know that how we love each other, when one of us falls, when a, one of us stumbles, when one of us struggles, when one of us is ill, how we treat each other. Whereas if we're just yelling at each other, which is actually what most of the Christian church does all the time anyways, is trying to keep each other in line, or what we're doing is we're power seeking and we want to you know, usher in the next great you know, Roman Catholic church that rules the world and some sort of theocracy, we're not showing that love. We're not making Jesus attractive. And instead, we're actually making him repulsive. And so I just read this today from N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, where he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of his people, what, what the future state of the world looks like in general. And he's talking about the early Christians, like, well, okay, so what did they do with this? And he said, the early Christians discovered through their various callings how this new way of running the world through Jesus was to be worked out. It wasn't a matter of Christians simply taking over and giving orders in a kind of theocracy where the church could simply tell everyone what to do. That has sometimes been tried, of course, and it's always led to disaster. Yes, every time the church takes over, it's disaster, but neither Is it a matter of the church backing off, letting the world go on its sweet way and worshiping Jesus in a kind of private sphere? Somehow there is a third option, which we shall explore later in the book. And he says, we can get a glimpse of it in the book of Acts. The method of the kingdom will match the message of the kingdom. The method will match the message. The kingdom will come as the church, energized by the spirit, goes out into the world, vulnerable, suffering, praising, praying, misunderstood, misjudged, vindicated, celebrating, always, as as Paul puts in one of his letters, bearing in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed. So our call is to live as Jesus, is to do all of these things. It's not to seek power and control and dominion. It's not to, as Matt Walsh puts it, demoralize and humiliate our opponents and destroy them. It's to live out our freedom, live out our live out our humanity with each other and try to extend that elsewhere. I mean, and that's why I mean I always bring this, I mean, I've brought this up many times. It's like that's why I personally had a problem with the New Hampshire meme of Meghan McCain. Because yes, I know all the stories about the McCains and how terrible the decision and the tyranny was with the McCain's. But the minute you start mocking somebody's humanity and grief and saying, well, you're so upset about your dad, but your dad was an evil monster. Why aren't you upset? Like, I get the point. I get the point. You actually make a very good point. Like, but it's still humanity. It's still the most like grief is one of the most basic of human emotions When you start tearing away at that emotion, you start tearing away at that humanity, whether it's Meghan McCain or Dylan Mulvaney or, I mean, gosh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whatever. It's like, we didn't see Jesus do this. And no, I can't expect your random anarchist who doesn't believe in God to follow those rules. And I'll do my best to kind of just say, hey, I don't like it, but I understand your point. But even then I think it's like the left can sniff that out too. They can sniff out the lack of compassion. They can sniff out, you know, even if they're only, you know, yelling about it just because it's the libertarians, even if the Lulberts are only yelling about it just because it's LP New Hampshire, or even if they're only yelling about it just because it's Matt Walsh or Michael Knowles, they can still sniff sniff it out. And the people in the middle who, are, who aren't hardcore either way, they can sniff that out too. And these sorts of things, you know, like I said, is us as Christians, if we're sitting there judging one another, mocking one another, f- bickering with one another, fighting in- amongst ourselves, or we're mocking our opponents, bickering with our opponents, fighting them, always putting them down, what's attractive about that? Like The left already has all that stuff. They already have all the mocking. They already have all the bickering. There's got to be something attractive, something different, something that sets it apart. Whether it's the libertarian philosophy, whether it's Christianity, there's got to be something different that is a beacon that is the sort of the salt of the earth, the beacon on a hill that says, hey, actually, there's something different. There's another way. There's a third way to go about this and it's a good way, and it's a way of healing, a way of truth, a way of forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, resurrection. If we don't offer that, and if we don't live that out, out amongst themselves, all of our yelling and complaining doesn't mean anything.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think, yeah, show don't, I mean, it's not like the first rule of storytelling, like, like show, don't tell. It's like we can tell people, here's the gospel. We can just kind of make it break it down step by step. And you can be factually correct in explaining everything that the Bible says about salvation and repentance and being born again, but it doesn't compel someone to actually want to check that out. That you know, just telling them a bunch of facts, especially if you're telling them a bunch of facts in a very antagonistic sort of hostile judgmental way, there's something to be said about instead Being attractive to the people that you're trying to reach, that rather than trying to persuade them through coming at them with an argument, just your love and Christ shining through you attracts them to you. And ultimately, I think, you know, this is tough because there's, again, there's, and I think you've made allusion to this as well, there's no easy out here. There's no simple answer. There's no bumper sticker Christianity. You know what I mean? Like, and I talked about this in my last episode and there's this meme that's like a fork in the road and there's like a long line on the left, like one person on the right. On the left, it's like simple but wrong. And on the right, it's like complicated but right. And I'm not trying to say that's necessary. Now, I'm not trying to overly reduce everything to this one meme and to be like, well, the truth is always complicated. But rather, I just think that the truth is just, It's not always the bumper sticker slogans. You know what I mean? And it's not just shouting the truth at people. Being fishers of men, I mean, how do you go after fish? Do you go into the water and just like go at the fish head on like a madman? I mean, like you might get some fish that way, but is that the most effective fishing technique that humans have come up with? Like, no, a lot of fishing comes with patience and endurance and being calm and collective and knowing, you know, hey, like if I want to catch fish and I want to catch the hard to catch fish, I need to make sure I have some pretty alluring bait. And so now the flip side of this is we don't want to become too seeker sensitive that we become like the progressive Christians who just say, well, the best way to attract people to the church is just to make it so that they can just, hey, you know, your sinful lifestyle and all this stuff. You can do that and love Jesus. It's like, I mean like, okay, in a sense, yes, you should, like, I don't, you will come to Jesus with the baggage of your sin. But the problem is if you preach a message like progressive Christianity where you pervert the scripture and you pervert the truth, I don't think you're actually connecting them to Jesus. At least not, you're not fully connecting them to Jesus because there's, and so this is a tough balancing act, right? Like, and I think you, what you don't, I agree with everything everything you said about the show don't tell, and that you need to we need to be attractive to people in terms of the and making the message of the gospel attractive. But balancing that against going too far that direction where you will not stand on truth and you will pervert the. so I guess I guess the you know that that's the guardrails, right? Like we can't ever drift away from the truth, which is why I think the passage in first Corinthians 13 is so perfect because it says love is patient. Love is kind. Love endures all things. but Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And so I think that kind of lays out what we have to do as we're loving people. We need to love them in their sin, in their pain, and we need to walk alongside aside them and this is not just for sinners. I think this even includes people who persecute us. Like it's taught like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. If someone asks of you to walk one mile, I walk a second mile and to turn the other cheek. And if people borrow from you and they don't pay you back to, to lend to them again, it's like, this is, it's not about being doormats. It's about, you know, understanding that we will reach people with that message of the gospel, but it's not like we're not going to, argue them into it in one conversation where and then, and then the minute they don't like oh well now we're done with you. No, we're called to to sit with the sinners. We're called to and we don't compromise on the truth while we do that. But we have to trust that, you know, the Holy Spirit will do the heavy lifting of the convicting people of their sins, I think. And I think that's where conservatives really miss the mark, which is that yes, we don't want to we don't want to shy away from the truth. We don't want to pervert the truth or dilute it. But at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit's going to do a lot better job of convicting people and leading them to repentance than we do. And our job is just to be the ambassadors, right? You know what I mean? We're not Christ ourselves. We're just trying to point people to him and to, you know, be good representatives of that. I guess we're getting towards the end here. What do you think about that in terms of the balancing act between all the things you said, but not wanting to go too far, like, like I would say, like the progressive Christianity has.
2: I would almost say that a balancing act might not be the best way to put it. I think we're just called to work out our salvation. And I think what that has meant for me and what that means for me is taking my thoughts, my beliefs, my belief structure, and holding it up with open hands and putting that before scripture, before God, before community, and working that out with people. And eventually that got me to the point. I'm like, Oh man, this, these, it wasn't so much that what didn't get me was, Oh, I'm sinning by transitioning. What got me is this isn't leading me to life. And so it's like, you have to have a space where people are free to come and, you know, they might have a strongly held belief that whatever they're in sin over is that in fact, okay. You have to it's like you have to i don't know there's it's,
1: it's not your job to like yeah disavow them of that right there right, and then right or it's even not, or to make the basis of every interaction you have with that person disavowing right. them of that like you have to just treat them like a person and pray for them, and I agree, let them work out their salvation
2: yeah, we're not called to be jesus, we're not called to dig sin out of other people's lives we're called to love like Jesus did and like for me it's like it's been convi- it's this has been a convicting process for me because i led an organization called Don't Tread on Philly and we were very vocal against the vaccine mandates and lockdowns and stuff here in Philly and it's stuff there their convictions that i held deeply and i still hold some of these convictions deeply but man i was also a jerk to some people online i was a jerk to some people in general and i look back and i'm like was that worth it i don't think so It's like I I feel like I've had to repent and say you know what I'm not going to do this anymore, at least in terms of being a jerk. Now it doesn't mean I don't speak out, but sometimes it means I hold my tongue, especially if my if I'm going to speak out in anger. And so what I've kind of come to this point, this conclusion of the stronger I hold a conviction, the stronger I hold something to be true. I think the more care I need to take, and I don't like to use the word careful because it can become I think it, it's almost cliche. I want to take care to speak it well or to choose to not speak it when the time comes from it. The stronger the level of conviction, I think the stronger level of care needs to be taken in how I speak and act those words out. And...
1: gentle of doves, wise yeah. as
2: serpents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like I said, I don't know if it's about striking a balance as it is so much about striking a balance as it is just living my life as a human and trying to live life with the people that are struggling alongside me because I'm struggling too. all of us as Christians are struggling. Do you think it's
1: perhaps maybe this connects to sort of anarchy and libertarianism a little bit, but do you think it maybe has something to do with like this, the illusion or the, not the illusion, like the temptation or the lure of control and authoritarianism. And I think that's something Christians struggle with because it's like we we see sin and we can discern it and we can see all the problems that it causes. But the minute we try to, w- that we fall into that trap of trying to control people around us, and even if it's not through the state, because like we could, we could make the, sound arguments all day about why trying to control people with the state is not what we're called to do as Christians. And I do that practically every week here on this podcast. So that's definitely one part of it. But I think another important aspect to it, and I think this can lead to the desire to use the state, is that people want to, like, even if they might say, Actually, we back up. Like, I think this is what conservatives have sort of gone through. Like some who used to be libertarian and then became like, ah, I'm not libertarian anymore. I'm done with my libertarian phase and now I'm just a staunch <laughs> conservative. Like what I've seen them do is they kind of had this idea of like, well, I'm not going to use the law or the state to control people, but we're going to win the culture war and we're going to, you know, use our ideas and our activism and we're going to control people that way, or at least influence them strongly and kind of create the world around us we want to create, which fails because, you know, sin touches every part of life and people are broken and that just doesn't work. And then they get to a point of frustration where they just, and this gets to the part of being angry that you alluded to, which we've also talked about (laughs) privately, this sort of like people get to this point where they get so angry and fed up with the sin they see around them. that like something snaps and they go, all right, now I have to be, just like my whole identity and network needs to be speaking out against this, being outraged about this, and beyond being a jerk. Like now, I need to try to control people even more. And I guess libertarianism is wrong because we have to try to control people to stop all of this run amuck sin. And I think the problems there are obviously one that like I mean I'll pay lip service to the libertarian argument again because although I make it all the time, it's like hey the state is not a great instrument for snuffing out sin. It's actually the opposite. It's a great instrument for centralizing and attracting evil and sin and magnifying its effect. And it will never be wielded the way that you want it to be wielded. Just like the one ring of power only serves one master. But beyond that, just the desire to control people in general, like that's not how Jesus led. Like Jesus didn't try to control the people around him. He didn't just try to like, I mean, and it's tough because there's both, right? There's There are teachings of Jesus that were hard, that were kind of like pushing people. But even then, it wasn't like he was trying to control them. He was just giving sound teaching to those who wanted to listen to it. So I don't know. I think maybe the last, I don't know. There's no way we could cover this in the time we have left, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> what do you say to people who, who just get this sort of like righteous anger because I, this is something I struggle with. Yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know how to balance the Jesus who flipped tables and fashioned whips with the Jesus who taught us to turn the other cheek. And those are both Jesus. And I want to honor both of those teachings and examples that he gave us. And, you know, balancing act is probably not the right word here, but it's like you, it's more, I think, like an integration that we have to have the capacity for both of those styles, right? We, we have to have the capacity for anger and the capacity to be demonstrative sometimes. But maybe. Is that, is that sort of, was that <laughs> like the focal, was that sort of the norm of Jesus's ministry? Was he going around? yelling at everyone and flipping tables everywhere he went? Or was that like one time in the gospel narratives that, you know, he did that. I mean, there's other times he got angry called Pharisee, the brood of vipers. So I don't know. There, there's times that Jesus would be sharp with his tongue and be aggressive. But I don't know. I think it's kind of like, this makes me sad to quote him, but it reminds me of what Jordan Peterson says, which is like the union idea of like in, integrating the shadow, which yeah. by the way, Jordan Peterson, brother, you have lost control of your shadow, my friend. <laughs> it's not integrated. It's being rather dominant right now. And it pains me to see him so angry. Everyone on the right right now, they're just so angry. And it's like, man, yeah. I get it. I have my days too where I'm angry, but I don't, think, I don't think it's where God wants us to dwell and where he wants us to sit.
2: I, yeah, I'm getting so... I mean, I think anger is a useful emotion, but it's a signal. I don't think we're supposed to act out of it. I think Jesus... I don't know entirely how to speak to the times where he was more poignant and the times that he did, you know, flip the tables. I do know that it was a very, very tiny part of his ministry and it was always directed like directly at the Pharisees. It wasn't directed at the surrounding world. I think your point's about control, and control is what makes us angry too. The lack of control ends up what makes us angry. I think all of this is about control what was my what were my gender issues about they were about control um i think what we're called to as christians and this is with every aspect this is with aspects of sin this is with aspects of anger with aspects of the culture war everything we are called to surrender control i was taught growing up that surrender was all about desire like oh well i have to surrender my desires give up on wanting desires it's like, no, no, actually, it's not it. We're made to have desires. We're created to desire things. But what distorts desire in this life anything more than the desire for power and control? We could have good desires, but the minute we start wanting to control how we grasp those desires is the minute things go crazy bad. I mean, what is, I mean, what is murder or what is th- theft or what is rape, but desiring to control something else? What is rape, but the desire to control how you get sexual gratification? Should you not want sexual gratification? No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying, surrender your control. Do you, should you not want you know, some sort of recompense for something going bad? No, that's a very natural human good thing. But when you let it get out of control that it leads you to kill somebody, then that was control. So we're called, I think we're called to surrender control. And I think when we decide to surrender control, that changes the lens through which what we're looking at things. We can feel that anger and yes, integrate that anger. But if we're surrendering control to the one who's in control of all things, right. I mean, God is in control. He doesn't not know that there are doctors butchering kids. He right. He knows. And we, yes, we're called to stand up and work out justice. And, but, we're, but we have to surrender our control in the way that we want to go about things first. And, then, and that's the example that Jesus showed us. Because you know what? He, for the love, for the people, for the hope that was before him, endured the cross. He went and prayed in Gethsemane, let this cup pass. He did not want to have to do that, but he surrendered control, knowing full well he was going to get resurrected and knowing full well that his death ultimately wasn't going to be the last say. That's why he was able to, you know, when Peter takes the sword and cuts off the ear, is able to say, Peter, put away your sword. Right. So he surrendered control.
1: So many people get that passage wrong because they think it's Jesus condemning him for the violence and like it's, oh, that's support of pacifism and, and a rebuke of self-defense and pacifism is an interesting topic, which I'd love to get into another time. But no, it's like the main problem there is that, yeah, like you said, Peter's trying to control everything and he doesn't have faith. Jesus is condemning his lack of faith because Jesus has already told them multiple times at this point that this is going to happen. And that it has to happen. And Peter is trying to take matters into his own hands. And that's what Jesus says, like, will I not take the cup that my father has given me? So that's why he rebukes Peter and puts the, that's all casual. It's like, and Jesus puts the ear back on, just like, you know, like.
2: (laughs) I mean, Abraham, it's like, again, Abraham doesn't surrender his desire for Isaac. He surrenders control.
1: Right, right. It says in Hebrews that like Abraham knows that God can resurrect Isaac or that something, but he's like, but I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to be obedient and trust. And I think that's what's missing here. to lack of, and that doesn't mean that we should be passive. That doesn't mean that we should be not active in the world. But I think, you know, at some point being salt and light in the world and being sort of like citizens of the kingdom of God, it should make the way we go about things be distinct from the world. You know what I mean? Like we shouldn't just look like the world with a Christian coding. You know what I mean? Like we shouldn't just be gilded in Christianity, but underneath just be all the same stuff of the world, which is what you said earlier. Like if you're telling people to repent, but all they see behind your words is more of the same, the message will not resonate with them. We have to call people to repent through our actions and not because we're trying to control them because we are so overjoyed and so happy to be with our savior. And we're so grateful for what Jesus has done for us that we just can't help, but live that out and want to tell people about it and want to see, like, I want you to have the same joy that I have. That is evangelism right there. Not, you know, repent now or you're, you will burn in hell or you're an abomination or the kind of things that you see on the right right now. It's just, it's missing the
2: mark. I think one of the biggest things about control is it, it makes us quick to act. And so I think one of the easiest ways to seed control and to go about that way that you're talking about in terms of, you know, evangelizing by loving and acting is by being slow to act slow to respond. I mean, that's why, yes. I, I mean, it's, just, it's, who is God? He's slow to anger, slow to anger, right. and abounding <laughs> in steadfast love, slow to anger. And so, I think we're called to be the same. And too often as Christians, and I, like I said, I'm guilty of this. I was very quick to anger over the past couple of years. I've been very quick to anger in many ways in my life and probably will continue to be so. I'm called to be slow to anger and quick to love. Yeah. No,
1: I, I think, that is what Jesus did. And if we're called to imitate him, then, you know, that's something we have to work on. Torin, we're over time, actually. We, we <laughs> ran out of time 20 minutes ago, but it's been a great conversation. And I'm so glad I was able to have you on to talk about it. We could do another hour on it, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think overall, I want to give you the last word on any, anything on this subject, but I think what I'm taking away from this is, is yeah, like there there's, and this this there's this connection between all these things where it's like we are not called to control the world we're called to point the world to the savior but that is through true like you know doing the work isn't browbeating people and controlling them it's it's showing them the love of the savior and showing them the joy that we have in it and yeah i mean i think that connects perfectly to my you know, and our shared libertarian and anarchist leanings, which is that, you know, if if that's the way we're supposed to live with people, and that is the example that that were shown, those things are just fundamentally at odds with the state. <laughs> I mean the state is the state is the is is as far opposite of those things as you can get. Um and we I think I think and, and that's my hesitancy with these laws too. Is like, even like I, I get where they're coming from and I don't know, I don't want to make perfect the enemy of the good, but man, I mean, same with abortion and, and some other things. Like if we're just, if, if it, like, it, it, that's also a lack of faith. Like it's just more, we have to control people and prevent these bad things from happening and not, Jesus didn't say go forth therefore and control the world and stop people from sinning. That's not what we were called to do. Um, so I, I, think, I think we've done a pretty good job at unpacking this and showing that uh, to live out the gospel is to truly do the opposite of that. So uh, any, give any closing remarks that you want to give on this subject and then um, you know, tell people where they, if they want to follow you on Twitter or your Substack or any of the stuff that you've done. If you want to uh, plug that before we go, you can certainly do so.
2: Yeah, I mean, just uh, I, I guess the last, You know, final remark is, again, let's, um, you know, maybe instead of yelling, maybe instead of telling, you know, let's show, you know, let's, uh, if we really want to make, um, if we really want to change hearts and minds, we'll show people the attractiveness of Christ, we'll show people the attractiveness of forgiveness, the attractiveness of restoration, the attractiveness of repentance, we'll show people the love and life that comes out of that. In the same way, go, the same thing goes for libertarianism and anarchy. You know, if we really, if we want to draw people away from the state, well, we have to show people that life apart from the state is attractive. Um, and so that's what I—that's what I want to, you know, I'm trying to focus my life on right now. I'm definitely a hypocrite in speaking this. Um, <laughs> I have my issues. Well. But uh, we all
1: are, and that's why we need a savior. You <laughs> want
2: if you want to continue following my hypocrisy, um, you can follow me at T as in Torin, P as in Paul, D N W S K. That is my name, Torin Danowski. But first, middle initials, and then last name with no vowels. That's on Twitter, and then also Substack. I haven't written in a while, but I've got like five articles in the works that I haven't finished that I want to finish. Um tpdanowski.substack.com It's where you can find my work there. And yeah, it was a pleasure, as always, speaking with you, Jacob. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you, Torin. Always fun to talk and dive into these ideas with you. So definitely check out Torin's past writings and things and look forward to seeing you get back at it. I know what it's like to have a lot of projects in the work but have none of them done. It's kind of <laughs> my reading list. I have I have five books that I'm currently a quarter of the way through, but I'm not great at finishing reading them. So <laughs> <Me too. laughs> that's just the way it goes sometimes. <laughs> but uh, thank you again, Torn, for coming on. Thank you to all of you who tuned in and listened. If you like this conversation, let us know in the comments. I hope it was encouraging and edifying. And of course, always, if you like this show, leave a review as well. That helps with the algorithms and the reach and all that. So if it's Apple Podcast or Spotify, If you leave a five-star review, that's great. If it's YouTube, hit that thumbs-up button and subscribe if you haven't yet already. And please also check out the rest of our fantastic roster of shows on the Christians for Liberty Network, including we just added a new show. If you haven't heard already, it's the Protestant Libertarian Podcast with Alex, who I've had on my old show. I haven't had him on this show yet, but that'll be in the works soon. So he's got great content, so make sure you go check Him out. He's our newest addition to the roster, and we have more to come. So that's all that we have for this week's episode. Make sure you tune in next week. And until then,
0: take care. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.